Father in heaven, this is probably, in fact, I think this is the most important sermon in the entire New Testament. Maybe in the entire Bible, Father, these chapters, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, give us so much good gospel education and religion and insight that, Lord, if all we had was these three chapters, we would have more than enough. Father, we could spend the rest of our lives just in these three chapters, and there would still be great depths unexplored. And so, Father, just in this hour or so that we have together now, Father, we're not going to get through everything. But I pray that more important than an academic, thorough understanding of it, sort of coming from an observational perspective, Father, may we be more immersive here. May we be asking the questions, how can this sermon and the truths that are elucidated here benefit me? What can I put into practice? What can I learn? What can I apply? And uh, Father, you've done that for me in every pass through this chapter. And I pray now, Father, that the things that I've learned and the things that others have learned would coalesce by your spirit into a really great moment where we can just take on board the uniqueness of Jesus, the revolutionary character of Jesus, and Father, that this would not just be something external to us, but we would say, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount's not just something to be appreciated like a piece of art on a wall. It's something to be internalized, something to be practiced, something to be lived. And so be with us now as we spend time. To that end is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 31 in the Desire of Ages. Welcome, everyone. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to do quite a little bit of reading because, okay, the first key that I'm going to give you, the first key, let me just make sure I get this all, okay, I'll say one thing before I go to that first key. One of the things that we're going to see happening here in terms of the larger sort of biblical story, the gospel story that's unfolding in the life of Jesus is you might remember, what was it, a chapter ago or two chapters ago, he ordained 12. That was last chapter. We talked about how Jesus here has purposefully reconstituted Israel, right? So there were 12 patriarchs, 12 descendants of Jacob, and they, they are Israel. What Jesus is doing now in light of the fact that Israel has largely failed to live up to the great plan and purpose and expectation that God had for them, Jesus is reconstituting Israel. We've talked about this already. What's happening here now, this is cool, is on the, the mount where Jesus delivered the sermon, he is giving us the new Sinai. So we've got the new Israel, and now we have the new Sinai. Jesus, the lawgiver, is sitting atop the new Sinai, the New Testament Sinai, and he is not in any way contradicting or um, uh, making obsolete the old Sinai. What he's doing is he's rescuing the old Sinai from all of the perversions and darkness and deceptions and barricades that had been surrounding those precious truths that God had given so many centuries before. And so we have a new Israel, 
right? The 12, and she talks about how they were close to Jesus. They, they were pressed next to him and that as the crowds gathered, she says they were not to allow themselves to be crowded away from the presence of Jesus. And so you have Jesus there. He's the center of attention. Just outside of that are his disciples, those that had given their lives to him, that were around him with all the unique personalities that we discussed. And then outside of that is the multitude, right? The multitude. And on this particular day, the multitude was so large that the original location that they thought they were going to sort of have that day's teaching from, uh, they had to go find another location and a mountain, right? A little sort of rise provided the perfect natural amphitheater for Jesus to basically recreate, reconstitute Sinai. So we've got a new Israel and a new Sinai, okay? And she does such a great job of painting this picture. And so here's key number one. You have to continually resist the temptation to read the Sermon on the Mount as if it was preached in 2021, okay? This is essential. By the way, this is true of all Scriptural understanding, what's called hermeneutics, which is the, the enterprise, the academic enterprise of trying to understand, to interpret an ancient text. It doesn't even have to be an ancient text, but just a text. And hermeneutics is the art of understanding, the skill, the science of understanding, not only what it means to me today, but most importantly, in order to get there, what it meant in the original context, by the original author or deliverer or speaker to the original audience. And yes, after we've done that first hermeneutical task, what did it mean in that context, in that situation, by that speaker? Then we can go and say in 2020, 2021, 2022, we can go and say, where are the points of application? But it's really easy and sloppy, but also easy to just read the Sermon on the Mount as if Jesus was just giving it down the street today. No, Jesus was speaking into a very specific, historical, cultural, social, religious context. Is there overlap of application? Of course there is. Are there principles here for us? Yes. Are there timeless truths and principles? Yes, 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 yes. But the reason that Jesus said many of the things the way he said it was because he was speaking to an audience that was actually present on an actual hillside at an actual time. And the things he was saying were for them. Now it's also for us. And Jesus having, of course, the, the larger perspective that divinity affords, he knew that we would be sitting here reading this in you know the 19th century and 20th century and 21st century and making application. But too many people want to skip from what was said to the application. No, you have to go, what was said? What did it mean? Now, what does it mean? And then what's the application? So that's the hermeneutical enterprise. What did this mean? The idioms, the language, the ideas in the original context to the original audience by the original writer or speaker. And that's hermeneutical key number one. You've got to remember the expectation, the electricity in the air is that a military political messiah is arriving. People are increasingly persuaded. Yeah, this might be the guy. I mean, he's, he doesn't fit exactly their expectations. In fact, there's a great many things that he says and does that are outside of the traditional expectation of messiah. But no one can deny miraculous power, divine sayings, insightful teachings, uh, the ability to heal, 
the way that he handles, you know, hostile situations. So yes, he's not a perfect fit, but he's enough of a fit. And they say that a drowning man will grasp at anything. You throw him a dead fish and a drowning man will try to grab that. Israel is drowning under the yoke of Roman oppression and all of the psychological, cultural, social baggage that goes along with that. And so, yeah, Jesus is not exactly the Messiah they're looking for, but they're just ready to grab him. In fact, at one point in the not too distant future, John 6, they are just going to grab him and like make him king. Like you're the guy, whether you like it or not, you're modest, you're demure, you're humble, but, but you're the guy. And so, so you have to hear all the things that Jesus is going to say in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the larger context of Jesus speaking. Let me just make sure. Looks like my, give me two seconds. Okay, sorry about that, Instagram. Um, my Wi-Fi just dropped out. I don't know why. Okay, we're back on track now, though. By the way, if anything ever goes wrong on Instagram, we record the presentation on another camera that I've got here, and then we premiere it on YouTube later today. So if for some reason something goes catastrophically wrong, you can always get the presentation on my YouTube channel later that day. Okay, so I think I've said enough about that. When we're reading the Sermon on the Mount, don't skip over that important hermeneutical step, which is what was Jesus saying to the audience that was there that day? And Ellen White, in my opinion, both in today's chapter, but especially in this book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, she does an incredible job of creating that sense of anticipation, wrong-headed anticipation, but anticipation nonetheless. And I'm going to read several of these paragraphs to set it up, to set it up. Um, I'm going to start in on, uh, let's say, I'm on page 342, which is where this chapter starts in the Types and Symbols, 298 of the original I'm going to start I'm going to start on page 343 with the paragraph that begins the disciples place was always next to Jesus and I'm just going to read a few paragraphs here and I'll read them quickly. Here we go. The disciples place was always next to Jesus. The people constantly pressed upon him. Yet the disciples understood that they were not to be crowded away from his presence. They sat close beside him that they might not lose a word of his instruction. They were attentive listeners, eager to understand the truths they were to make known to all lands and all ages. And we want to be the same, right? This is really good writing. She's describing the disciples as eager listeners. I want to be a disciple. You want to be a disciple. We are disciples. So we also want to be attentive listeners. Next paragraph. And I love this. This really sets it up. Sets it up great, actually. With a feeling that something more than usual might be expected, there is a sense in the air, they now pressed about their master. They believed that the kingdom was soon to be established. Aha, aha, that is a table-setting, tone-setting idea. And from the events of the morning, they gathered assurance that some events of the morning, oh, excuse me, that some announcement concerning the kingdom was about to be made. A feeling of expectancy pervaded the multitude also, and eager faces gave evidence of the deep interest. As the people sat upon the green hillside awaiting the words of the divine teacher, their hearts were filled with thoughts of future glory. She then has an incredible section here that I love. This sets the historical context. She says, There were scribes and Pharisees who looked forward to the day when they should have dominion over the hated Romans and possess the riches and splendor of the world's great empire. 
The poor peasants and fishermen hoped to hear the assurance that their wretched hovels, the scanty food, the life of toil, and fear of want were to be exchanged for mansions of plenty and days of ease. In place of the one coarse garment, which was their covering by day and their blanket at night, they hoped that Christ would give them the rich and costly robes of their conquerors. All hearts thrilled with the proud hope that Israel was soon to be honored before the nations as the chosen of the Lord and Jerusalem exalted as the head of the universal kingdom. Okay, that's it. That's great, 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 great historical tone setting. Um, one more quick note here. In the very first paragraph, she uses two phrases that will become very helpful in my takeaway and understanding my takeaway from this chapter. She says, it was his work to reach the multitudes who were in ignorance and error. He gave his lessons of truth where they could reach the darkened understanding. Ignorance, error, darkened understanding. She then paints the picture of expectation among the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, ordinary peasants and fishermen. The expectation is that when Messiah shows up, he's going to be, and forgive my language here, he's going to be a butt-kicking Messiah, right? Like he's going to set things straight. He's going to set things in order. He's going to exalt Israel to its proper position as, what does she say? Uh, as the chosen of the Lord and Jerusalem to be exalted as the head of a universal kingdom. So you have to understand all of the things that Jesus is going to say and especially the very first thing he says, the very first thing he says is set against the backdrop of Jesus seeking to undermine, right? And not in any way sanction the darkness of understanding and ignorance and error that pervaded the multitude. This is essential to understand. Absolutely essential if we're going to get our mind wrapped around what Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying. Christian Martin says, high but wrong exceptions is a false hope. Correct. Yeah, they have wrong, their, their expectations, I think that's what you meant, is expectations there, Christian. Let's see, what does Hannah say? Opposite of ignorance and error was, yeah, he's going to reveal the truth, exactly. But the, the first key that you've got to keep in your mind as you read through the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus was saying the things he was saying to a specific group of people at a specific time and said things very purposefully and specifically to undo much of what had been done over centuries leading up to first century Judaism, okay? Second temple Judaism. So what is the, I just said, I just made a big, big, big statement and maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. Before I read that statement, let me read one more paragraph. I'm on page 344, 344, 300 of the original. Gotta read this paragraph. Christ disappointed the hope of worldly greatness. And that's a theme we've encountered several times, isn't it? How people see the Messiah or they hear the Messiah or they get access to the Messiah and they're disappointed. They're like, oh, well, that's not what I thought it was going to be. Christ purposefully is disappointing their earthly ambitions. It's purposeful. It's designed for this. And the disciples are all sitting there. They also have a misunderstanding of the nature of his kingdom and his mission. They're also confused. Everybody's confused except Jesus, of course. And so she says, Christ disappointed the hope of worldly greatness. In the Sermon on the Mount, he sought to undo the work that had been wrought by 
false education and to give his hearers a right conception of his kingdom and of his own character, yet he did not make a direct attack upon the errors of the people. He saw the misery of the world on account of sin, yet he did not present before them a vivid delineation of their wretchedness. He taught them of something infinitely better than they had known. This is good. Without combating their ideas of the kingdom of God, he told them the conditions of the entrance therein, and I thought this was brilliant, leaving them to draw their own conclusions as to its nature, to the nature of the kingdom. The truths he taught are no less important to us. There's the application. See what she just did there? There's the, there's the pivot. There's the fulcrum. The things he taught then in that context to those people, the things he said in that situation, notice what she does, the truths he taught are no less important to us than to the multitude that followed him. We, no less than they, need to learn the foundation, foundational principles of the kingdom of God. And then she goes into exposition. So all of that sort of first two pages is table setting. It's context setting. It's historical context setting. And by the way, she'll return to that periodically throughout the chapter. She'll go back and say, well, this is how this sounded to them. This is what they thought Jesus was saying. And without that, without being consistent and insistent to keep in your mind the historical context and situation, you're going to lose track of the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to start to make all kinds of erroneous applications because you're bypassing the crucial step, which is what did it mean to the original audience in the original context? And only then can we say, what does it now mean? What are the principles? What are those timeless eternal truths that Jesus was advocating? This is, of course, the two parts of the hermeneutical enterprise. What did it mean? What does it mean? And then, of course, how do I apply it in 2021? Um, so then, 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 the very first thing that Jesus says is purposefully calculated, and I've preached sermons on this, lots of them. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth are purposefully well-chosen, probably thought about for years, certainly months, to provoke, to destabilize, to create a sense of disorientation, like, what?! It's the opposite of flattering national hopes and ambitions. So I'm just in chapter five, verse one now of uh, Matthew. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, the new Sinai, reconstituting Israel, reconstituting Sinai. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What? What, what? This simple statement, this simple beatitudinal statement, the next 10 verses address what we refer to as the beatitudes, right? These, this incredible list of, a sequential list, I might add, of eight steps, eight, eight, eight steps in a sequence whereby the kingdom of heaven is to be understood and entered upon. And that first one, lands like a bomb right in the heart of the expectation of the crowd that was there that day and of just first century Judaism generally. Happy are those that recognize their spiritual poverty because those are the people that the kingdom of heaven is for. Recognize their spiritual poverty? What? What do you mean recognize their spiritual poverty? 
We are the descendants of Abraham. We are the chosen people. We're God's covenant community. And you, in case you forgot, Mr. Messiah, you're the Messiah and your job is to lead us, as she says there, to uh, that we might be honored before the nations as the chosen of the Lord and that Jerusalem would be exalted as the head of the universal kingdom. So that just that first beatitude, that first sentence, that first phrase, that first promise of happiness and blessing falls like a bad joke at a dinner party. Like nobody gets it, nobody likes it, and everybody wishes it could quickly be unsaid. Happy are those that recognize their spiritual poverty because those are the people that will find entrance into an understanding of the kingdom that I'm advocating? No, 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 no. Those that are spiritually impoverished are the Samaritans. Those are the Romans. Those are the non-Jews. Those are the non-pious Jews. In case you hadn't noticed, Mr. Messiah, we're here on the mountain. We're attentive. We're ready. We are your loyal and devout followers. So you must be confused about who you're speaking to. Okay, Literally, this is not an exaggeration. We're, and there's no way we're going to have the time to go through this entire chapter. But here's another hermeneutical key. Okay, I've given you several. The historical context, that's a giant one. Here's a second one. The Beatitudes, which is the first 10 verses here, right? So really beginning in verse 3. So verses 3 to 10, actually all the way down to 12. 3 to 12. The Beatitudes set the tone for everything that follows and within the context of the Beatitudes, the first of the Beatitudes sets the tone for everything that follows within the Beatitudinal sequence. The importance of this cannot be overstated. And I've got several sermons on YouTube that you can look up and find to this effect. In fact, I'm preaching this weekend um, at, a, uh, at an ASI gathering, which is like a, a, a group of uh, business people and entrepreneurs that come together. They sort of pool their resources and they sponsor ministries all around the world. And I'm, there's a regional meeting and I'm preaching there this Sabbath. And man, I am just so, I don't know what I'm preaching at today when I'm done with this. And then tomorrow is basically writing those sermons. I got to preach too. And man, it's going to be hard for me to preach on anything that's not the Sermon on the Mount because this is just so where my mind is right now. All day yesterday, all morning this morning, and I got so many ideas, um, but I've preached so much on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm like, man, I, I got to, what am I going to do? So anyway, these are the, the, the woes, the difficulties of being a preacher, right? Especially a preacher in the days where every sermon you've ever preached in every situation has been captured on the internet, right? So it's like, you almost can't preach sermons more than about one or two times. And then it's like, oh yeah, I've heard that one. I've done that so many times. I preach a sermon. They're like, oh, I love this sermon. I've heard this sermon eight times. It's like, well, okay, good. I hope it was good the ninth time. But so anyway, never mind the woes of the preacher. The point is, as I have made this point many times before, in the flow of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that first verse there, that first beatitude is the pivot. It's the bomb that drops right in the heart of first century Judaism that nobody understands, that nobody likes, and everybody wishes could somehow be unsaid. No, no, can you start that over? Because you probably clearly don't understand who your audience is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that recognize their spiritual poverty for they're the ones that are going to find entrance into the kingdom that I'm here to advocate. Okay, now what Ellen White does is, and very much in keeping with the sort of template and the structure 
of the Sermon on the Mount, she spends the next two chapters expositing, elucidating that one beatitude. And I'll say this. In fact, I even wrote this. I wrote it right down here in the corner. I wrote it right here. And what I wrote down here in the corner is everything else in this chapter follows these two foundational and essential paragraphs. So in the same way that Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, sets the tone for the Sermon on the Mount, these two paragraphs right here, that's page 344, 300 of the original, set the tone for everything else that she's going to say. And I'm sure of this. I'm absolutely certain of this. She sets the tone theologically. She sets the tone contextually. Everything else she will say, just as everything else that Jesus said, flowed out of the great fountainhead of the kingdom of heaven is for those who recognize their spiritual poverty. Okay? The importance of this cannot be overstated. Let me read you this now. We're going to go through certain sections here with a fine-tooth comb, and then we're going to have to, because we could literally be here the next several hours, we're going to skip over sections, and, but there are going to be some sections that I'm going to go through with a fine-tooth comb, and this is one of them. So, <laughs> we're just going to read here. Here we go. Oh, in fact, I'm not going to, it's going to be hard for me to not reference this book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, but I will only say that one of the things that she says when she's, right after she quotes, um, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, right here. I'm just going to read you this first sentence. First sentence of exposition. She says, as something strange and new, these words fall upon the ears of the wondering multitude, the confused multitude, the incredulous multitude, the stupefied multitude. Strange and new. Strange and new. Strange and new. No wonder, no wonder, when we get down to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew 5, 6, 7, I'm going to read you the last two verses of Matthew chapter 7. These are not a part of the Sermon on the Mount proper. These are Matthew's commentary on the people's reaction to the Sermon on the Mount. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. They were incredulous. They couldn't believe it. They they didn't know what to think of it. They were amazed. They were fascinated. They didn't like it, but it was certainly unlike anything they'd ever heard or expected. Verse 29, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees or the religious leaders. Strange and new. Strange and new. And everything that's going to follow from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 is also strange and new, but the tone is set in that first sentence, that first beatitude, and in these two paragraphs. Okay, you ready? Fine tooth comb. Here we go. Christ's first words to the people on the mount were words of blessing. Happy are they, he said, who recognize their spiritual poverty and feel their need of redemption, of rescue, is what that word means, to be rescued. The gospel is to be preached to the poor, not to the spiritually proud those who claim to be rich and in need of nothing, that's very Laodicean-esque, it is revealed, but to those who are humble and contrite. Oh, this is important. I, gotta, I actually had to bust out another color pen, and I used my purple color pen because in that fifth pass through, the fifth reading through, I saw something that I thought, oh, 
I saw something and I went back through and marked it with purple and here's one that I just missed. I'll come back to this, but I don't want to miss it here. Let me just quickly mark this. Uh, she says, um, it is revealed, I'm just underlining this here in purple, to those who are humble and contrite. I'll come back to that. That's a big theme here. It's another hermeneutical key. But let me just keep reading. One fountain only has been opened for sin, a fountain for the poor in spirit. Oh, that's hot. That's so good. And you might want to just make a reference here to page 317, which is the types and symbols in the original. It's 280. But you might remember she talks about how for those that don't receive the righteousness of Christ, it is to them a robe unworn and a fountain untouched. Ooh, ooh, that's so hot. And so here she says there's only one fountain, one fountain opened up. That's it. And it's for the poor in spirit, those that recognize their need, recognize their spiritual poverty, who are not sitting in self-perceived ascendancy over others, looking down on them from their social, religious, genealogical perch. Jesus just flattens the whole landscape of first century Judaism and says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those that recognize their spiritual poverty, because that's who this kingdom is for. Next paragraph. The proud heart strives to earn salvation. But both our, oh, this is so big, so much great theology here. Don't have time for it though. But both our title to heaven and our fitness for it are found in the righteousness of Christ. Beloved, that sentence needs to be underlined big time. Big, big time. I'm gonna read it again. Both our title to heaven and our fitness for it are found in the righteousness of Christ. The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until he is convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency. He yields himself to the control of God. Then he can receive the gift that God is waiting to bestow. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. He has unrestricted access. Remember, that's an important word. That was actually one of our words just a few chapters ago. Access, unrestricted access, backstage pass, backstage access to him in whom all the fullness dwells. Okay, that, those two paragraphs are basically the essence of Ellen White's exposition of blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it sets the tone for everything else she's going to say. Everything else she's going to say flows out of this fountainhead and the idea is basically this. Both our... Our title to and our fitness for the kingdom that Christ is announcing and advocating is rooted in the righteousness of Christ. The Sermon on the Mount and so much of what's going to follow, page after page after page after page after page, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, is about practical godliness, how to behave, how to think, how to relate to others, practical godliness, but this point cannot be overemphasized. All of that stream of practical godliness flows from the fact that your title to and your fitness for the kingdom that Jesus came to announce and advocate flows from 
receiving the righteousness of Christ. Because if you didn't have these first two paragraphs, you could literally, if you didn't have the Beatitudes, you could literally come out the other end of the Sermon on the Mount and think, man, it's up to me. It's up to me. I gotta, I gotta get my act together. I gotta make it happen. This is on me. I need to not lust and I need to not hate and I need to not... Okay, yes, Christ does call us to obedience. He does call us to humility. He does call us to repentance. But friends, I'm gonna say it again. All of that moral exhortation, all of that practical Christianity, and remember, this is one of the great themes of Ellen White's writing. Practical Christianity, one of the themes of great of Jesus' teaching too, we should say. All of that flows from the fountainhead that the kingdom is present tense for those who recognize their spiritual poverty and who receive from Christ's righteousness both the title and the fitness. The importance of this cannot be overstated. Without these two paragraphs, this chapter would be terrifying. With these two paragraphs, this chapter is incredible, amazing, okay? Without the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount would be overwhelming. With the Beatitudes and the, and the twice-repeated promise, Yours is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Yours is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Without that beatitudinal gate that opens up the Sermon on the Mount, we would be overwhelmed with the Sermon on the Mount. But when we are told right up front, oh, you want to know the condition? You want to know the condition? The condition is such that even a man who's nailed to a cross in the last hours of his life can reach out to Messiah and say, don't forget me when you come into your kingdom. This is a man who recognized his spiritual poverty and knew he had a need. And Jesus says, oh yeah, my kingdom is for people just like you. Verily I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise. So friends, the thief on the cross didn't sneak through on a loophole. There's not like a loophole that says, oh yeah, 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 yeah. If you get nailed to a cross then all that's needed is just to recognize your spiritual poverty. That's your title and fitness. But for everybody else, it's actually, no, you, it's up to you. No, friends, it's up to Jesus. And Jesus has done it, is doing it, and will do it. But if we lose track of the preeminent, premier qualifier for entrance into the kingdom, which is recognizing your spiritual poverty, like the old hymn says, nothing Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Okay, do I need to keep preaching this or do you got the point, right? Matthew 5, 3 sets the tone for the whole Sermon on the Mount and these two paragraphs set the tone for everything that follows. By the way, it's not a, it's not a coincidence. Okay, so here's those two paragraphs right here. Here's those two paragraphs right here. Beginning of the Beatitudes, those two paragraphs. It's not a coincidence at all that she then quotes what, Isaiah uh, 57. She quotes Isaiah 57. Then she, begin, she continues to quote the next of the Beatitudes. And then look what I've just written right here. The cross. This whole paragraph here is on the cross. It's not a coincidence, friends. The way, <laughs> the way that we get access to salvation, to sanctification to the new heaven and the new earth, to the kingdom that Jesus came to, to promote and promise is through the cross. 
It's through the cross. There's no way, like the old gospel song says, there's no way around the cross. No way around the cross. Ellen White, man, she was steeped in good, solid, biblical, historical, Protestant, righteousness by faith theology. And we already had that, what, like three days ago now? That incredible section, what was it, chapter 28, Levi Matthew? I mean, are you kidding me? We went in on that chapter. Okay, so that's, a, that's hermeneutical key number one, historical context, hermeneutical key number two. Everything flows from that first, from the Beatitudes generally, but especially that first Beatitude. The kingdom of heaven is for those that recognize their spiritual poverty. This was strange and new. It was un- unwelcome. It was not understood. Jesus said it anyway. Um, I like what Michael says there. God's grace is scandalous. Yes, that's a great point. This would have been regarded as scandalous to speak to the Jewish people as if they're on the same level as all of those other people who are clearly spiritually impoverished, idolaters, non-Jews, uncircumcised. Yeah, that was scandalous. Great word. Great word. Um, Okay, so I've got my first point here. I've got my second point here. Okay, okay. Third hermeneutical key, third hermeneutical key. And this is gonna be a little different. I'm not just gonna go through the whole section because there's just a few highlight, you know, a few sections we'll go through again with a fine tooth comb. Here's a hermeneutical key. One of the things that emerges here is that holiness and the desire for holiness is an acquired taste for fallen humanity. Okay, holiness is an acquired taste for people like us. Holiness is an acquired taste. Our natural inclination, our natural tastes are to lust and hatred and unkindness and judgmentalism and superficial religiosity and showiness. That, that's, that's the natural inclination of the human heart. So true holiness, true righteousness is an acquired taste. You say, well, how do you acquire that taste? I'm so glad you asked. So one of the things that Ellen White will do again and again and again and again in this chapter is she will make the point, and I'll just highlight a few of them. First of all, I'll tell you what it is, and then I'll give you a few examples of it. She's going to make this point over and over again. I wrote down several little phrases here. Wisdom, spiritual wisdom. Wisdom follows willingness. Wisdom follows willingness. This is John seven seventeen. If any man willeth to do my will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether I be from God or no. So wisdom follows willingness. Number one, I got two more. Sight, spiritual sight, spiritual understanding of the way that things are actually happening in the world, both external to me and in my own heart. Sight follows sincerity. And then finally, right thinking and right doing follows repentance, okay? I'm just gonna read this to you as I wrote it here. This chapter develops this theme over and over again that spiritual insight and understanding of what's really going on, again, both externally to us in the world around us and also in our own hearts, our own fallen hearts. Spiritual insight comes from submitting oneself to God, not from raw intellectual power or giftedness or worse yet, from genealogical connection. Okay, this is very important to get your mind wrapped around. She makes this point over and over again that basically 
It's the same kind of thing that Paul makes in, what is it, 1 Corinthians 2.14, is that right? Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. It's not education or raw mental horsepower that gets us access. No, Jesus actually would say, and will say eventually in, in the gospel accounts, unless you become like little children, you will not enter. She makes this point, and, it, and I'm going to show you several examples of it here, that the way to understand what's really going on in the world internally and externally is to submit yourself to God. And then God gives wisdom. God gives perspicacity. God gives insight. You could say it this way. Observation follows obedience, right? Wisdom follows willingness. And I'll give you, there's just so many of them, but I'll give you a few. Well, one of them I just underlined seconds ago when I pulled out my purple pen. I'm back in that same first paragraph, the paragraph I just read a moment ago, where she's giving the exposition of um, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And let me just read it to you here. She says, not to the spiritually proud, those who claim to be rich and in need of nothing, is it revealed, but to those who are humble and contrite. That's it in a nutshell. You might be a rabbinical scholar. You might be a New Testament theologian. You might be enrolled at some Ivy League university. You might have been an inveterate follower of Jesus. All of that, by the way, can help you if it's put in the service of a humble and contrite heart that's willing to do, willing to obey, and willing to repent. God can then flood you, flood you with insight, knowledge, perspicacity, wisdom, understanding, but to come up against Scripture thinking that this is like an anatomy and physiology textbook or a, a math textbook or an astronomy textbook and, and what I need is intellectual horsepower and then I apply myself and worse yet, as we mentioned, you know, genealogical connection. Now I'm just sort of like, you know, grafted in, grandfathered in. No, we come with humility. We come with repentance. We come with all of those things that are described in the Beatitudes, right? Mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mercy toward others, purity in heart, desiring to be a peacemaker. These are the preconditions for understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's telling us, I'll read it again. Not to the spiritually proud, those who claim to be rich and in need of nothing, is it revealed, spiritual wisdom revealed, but to those who are humble and contrite. That is a theme in this chapter. And every time it occurs, I underlined it in purple. Um, and I'll just give you a few of my favorites. I'm just scanning through here. Oh, here's a good one. Page 347, 302 of the original. Those who make room in their hearts for Jesus will realize his love. The word realize here functions as to understand, to grasp, to have um, an appreciation for. Well, how do we get that? Through intellectual horsepower? No. Those who make room in their hearts for Jesus. Okay? Wisdom follows willingness. When the heart is in the right place, God can take care of intelligence. God can take care of wisdom. God can give insight. We don't come, you know, in some like strongman fashion to break down the doors of what God is trying to... No. We come with humility, we come poor in spirit, we come with great need, and God then lavishes biblical insight, biblical wisdom, and of course, behavior upon us in the context of 
making room for Jesus in the heart. I'll give you some more here. In that same paragraph, the pure element of love will expand the soul, giving it a capacity, a capacity for higher attainments and increased knowledge of heavenly things. Do you see that? As we come to Christ out of need and in humility and repentance, he, in, he dials up the capacity to understand what's actually going on. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If it was only intellectual horsepower by which we got access to Christ and to his kingdom and to all of the you know, munificence of his character, well, then just smart people would be saved. Right? Just people with an IQ above. I mean, God's not giving us an IQ test and saying, uh, yeah, you know, I'm sorry, you're, you're, on the, you're on the margin, you're on the threshold, you're not making it. No, no, no. Remember, many of the people to whom Jesus is speaking are themselves illiterate. And this barrier has been set up between the religious elite who are often very educated, very literate, and the sort of underclass and... They had the sense that unless you became like them, unless you behaved like them, acted like them, knew like them, you couldn't enter the kingdom, which is why it's going to be so astonishing to the people when he says, oh, one more thing. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, yeah, you're not going to make it in the kingdom. People were like, what? How can we be holier than them, more literate than them, more biblically conversant than them? But Jesus was playing a whole nother game. He's talking about a whole nother way of increasing capacity and knowledge and understanding. It's through humility. It's through repentance. It's through making room in your heart for Jesus. Jesus can take care of intellectual giftedness and brilliance. One of my close friends, Jeffrey, didn't even graduate from high school. Did not graduate from high school. And now he's enrolled in Cambridge University and is doing extremely well academically and is about ready to be a doctorate of history from one of the top universities in the world. Well, now people are going to say, oh, well, there was a latent intelligence there and Jeffrey was super smart all the time. Of course he was. There was some natural talent and giftedness there. And, but I will say, and I don't think Jeffrey would mind me saying this at all, part of the reason that he has increased in his intellectual capacity is he spent years as a minister of the gospel being infilled with Jesus on a basic level, ministering to people, reaching out to people, making room in his heart for Jesus. And Jesus is like, oh, so the thing that I'm calling Jeffrey to, oh, I need to, you know, he wants to go to Cambridge. That's where I'm going to use him. I'll just dial up the intelligence. I'll just dial up the IQ. I'll dial up the insight. I'll dial up the perspicacity. Great. Great. Let me read it to you again. The pure element of love will expand. It expands the soul, giving the soul a capacity for higher attainments, for increased knowledge of heavenly things. Uh, man, there's just so many of these. I'll see if I can find some others here. Oh, how about the very next page? Page 348, 305 of the original. This is the reverse of that. So that's the positive way of saying it. Here's the negative way of saying it. Selfishness prevents us from beholding God. Well, that's simple. Selfishness, the opposite of humility, the opposite of repentance, the opposite of a contrite heart, selfishness actually cuts us off from the intellectual attainments, the attainments of wisdom that God wants to give to us. 
Until we have renounced selfishness, we cannot understand him who is love. Only the unselfish heart, the humble and trustful spirit, will see God as he is. I mean, come on, it doesn't get any clearer than that. And she does it again and again. I've just read you three or four of them. I'll give you another one, page 350, 307 of the original. Hearts that respond to the influence of the Holy Spirit are the channels through which God's blessing flows. You make room and then God expands. God capacitates. God increases. It's incredible. What a, what a thing. Um, oh, oh, this was a great point. When Jesus is right in the midst of his Sermon on the Mount, many of the things that he was saying were so strange and new, so radical and unconventional that people didn't understand it. Not only did they not understand it, they didn't like it. Listen to this. Um, the Pharisees prided themselves on their obedience to the law, yet they knew so little, they knew so little of its principles through everyday practice. So to them, the Savior's words sounded like heresy. Now listen to this. As he swept away the rubbish under which the truth had been buried, they thought he was sweeping away truth itself. That's how uninitiated they were. Jesus is telling the truth and they think that he's sweeping away the truth because, not because they weren't smart, not because they weren't educated or intelligent or familiar with scripture, but because their hearts weren't in the right place. Wisdom follows willingness. Sight follows sincerity. Observation follows obedience. And she just does it again and again. There's literally so many more. There are so many more. Let me just make sure I'm not skipping some of the great ones. Oh, I'll come back to that real quick. Okay, that's the point made. And there, by the way, I just skipped over like 10 of them right there when I did those quick flips. Go back through and look for all of the times where she makes the point very clear that insight, wisdom, understanding is directly related to the position of the heart, not the power of the intellect. Feel that, feel that. And again, that flows out of the fountainhead of blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that know they have a need. All of this wisdom, right? This is very Solomonic, right? Where, where Solomon is a young king and God's like, ask for anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, yeah, I need wisdom. And then God says, because you've asked for wisdom, you get everything else. When we position ourselves correctly, orient ourselves correctly to God's righteousness, to God's goodness, to God's kingdom, with humility, with repentance, with obedience, God then makes us wise unto salvation. He turns up the IQ. He turns up the intellectual horsepower. He gives us insight into situations that's even greater than we could have got if we had just gone from an, a, a strictly academic perusal of Jesus and his life and his ministry. You're gonna learn some things. But what about the things that God can show you? What about the things that God can reveal to you? That's even better than the education you would get at the most prestigious of universities. By the way, nothing I'm saying here is diminishing the importance of getting a good education. Of course, it's not either or, it's both and. You get yourself a great education and you have that humility, that contrition, that repentance, that obedience, unstoppable. You're Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 10 times wiser, right? I just had a great conversation last night with my son, my oldest son, Landon, who's in Australia and uh, he's enrolled in a university there and he's doing extremely well. And I'm so proud of him because in the course of the conversation that I was having with him, it's just so obvious that his heart is in the right place with Jesus, 
with church, with his church community. And I said, Landon, if you seek first, which of course is right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, if you continue to make Jesus first and best in your heart, God is going to, he's going to excel you in your academics. It doesn't mean you can slack off your academics. He's not the kind of person to do that anyway. But I just thought to myself, he's going to be okay. Landon's going to be okay because even though he's a very gifted and intelligent young man, he's not relying on his giftedness and his intelligence. He's leaning into Jesus. And when we lean into Jesus and when our position, the position of our heart and our mind and our soul is oriented correctly to God, then the wisdom flows, then the obedience flows, then the righteousness flows, then the intelligence flows. That's the Sermon on the Mountain nutshell. And a lot of people were listening and like, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. But that's because they were oriented to an earthly kingdom, a political kingdom, to a military Messiah. Well, they weren't, they weren't ready to receive it. Okay, so that's hermeneutical key number two. Um, okay, I might as well do now number three. Are we on three or four? This is, a, this is a big one. And I might as well just tell you right up front what my word is. For me, sometimes I read a chapter through and I'm like, ah, I didn't see the word. I missed it or it didn't jump out at me or maybe I have three words and I can't decide between them. On this one, partly because I'm so, I'm so familiar with the Sermon on the Mount and I love it so much, I literally, on my first reading through, I read one sentence. It's a word she only uses one time. And I was like, that's the word. I knew it was the word. I didn't write it down yet because I did give myself you know, several more readings through to see if it settled and it felt right. Um, but it just got stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And I'm going to show you, this is great. Um, let me just see what some others have here. Humility. Deb Snyder says humility is my word. By the way, Deb, I got your email. I will respond to it. I'm really busy this week. Um, examine. Ooh, good, good guess, Hannah. The way, Eve, I like that. Selfless. Very good. Great word. Um, ooh, add one hush. That's a good word. Connection. Yeah, I can see that. Oh, hush, Jerome. You read my mind. I think this is the second time. The word is undo. Hush, Jerome. Isn't this the second time you've guessed my word? I think it is. Undo. Undo. Let me read it to you. This is in, uh, this is in, uh, page 300. 344 of types and symbols. You ready? Listen to this. Christ disappointed the hope of worldly greatness. In the Sermon on the Mount, he sought to undo the work that had been wrought by false education and to give his hearers a right conception of his kingdom and of his own character, yet he did not make a direct attack on their errors. Undo. I read that through and I was like, that's, that's the word. No wonder Jesus says six times in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard, but I say. 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 You know what he's doing there? He's undoing. He's undoing. And what I did is after I thought, I think that's gonna be my word, I took my yellow highlighter and I went through and marked every time where it was obvious that Ellen White was making the point that Jesus was sweeping away misunderstanding to create space for understanding. 
And all I can tell you is there's a whole lot of yellow in this chapter. Let me read you some of my favorites. Okay, remember in the opening paragraph, she says ignorance and error and a dark, a darkened understanding. Okay, undo. Now, let me just show you a few of these. Um, I, by the way, I'm not going to give you all of them. I'm just going to give you some of them. Um, now I'm on page 348. The multitudes were amazed at his teaching, which was so at variance with the precepts and example of the Pharisees. See what he's doing? They couldn't believe that he was speaking in such a way that was so calculated to undo generations of false teaching. Generations of false teaching. At variance. Uh, she continues, the people were silent. So this is like one of the great lines here. I'm saying paragraph 348, 305 of the original. The people were silenced Oh, no, let me back up one sentence. He spoke with certainty and a convincing power attended his words. The people were silenced and a feeling of fear crept over them. They looked at one another doubtfully. They're like, what? What? A greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees? What, what are the strange new things that are falling on our ears? Well, of course, the reason that these things sounded so strange and so new and so incomprehensible was they had almost certainly missed the gate of entrance that makes the whole Sermon on the Mount make sense. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that recognize their spiritual poverty. If you're not in a position to recognize your need in your spiritual poverty, all of the Sermon on the Mount is gonna sound like craziness to you and it did to them. They heard elements that they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. But then other things they'd be like, no, 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 no. It was a mix for them of things that sounded right, but didn't, but did, but didn't, but did, but didn't. But if they would have, again, oriented themselves to the central truth that those that recognize their need are those that God will pour his spirit upon and within, the Sermon on the Mount makes perfect sense. And this is one of the great hermeneutical keys that unlocks the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus wasn't primarily doing something he was primarily undoing something. Back to historical context. Let me give you a few others. Uh, very next page, 349, 306 of the original. The world loves sin and hates righteousness, and this was the cause of its hostility to Jesus. All who refuse his infinite love will find Christianity a disturbing element. Ooh, ooh, that's right. Notice what she says next. The light of Christ sweeps away the darkness that covers their sins and the need of reform is made manifest while those who yield to the influence of the Holy Spirit begin war with themselves. Those who cling to sin war against the truth and its representatives. This is such an insight. And I just wrote right here in the margin, right here in the margin of this paragraph, I wrote, you're going to be at war. Settle this in your mind right now. You will be at war. You are at war. And she says you're gonna be at war with either one of two things. We either war with ourselves in our natural inclination, our carnal nature to selfishness and sinfulness, or we war with the truth. By the way, this is exactly what Paul will say later in Romans 8, that, that there's an enmity that's against God. That's the natural enmity, enmity that I have, hatred, which is why it's so powerful that in that initial gospel promise in Genesis 3, God's promise was to put enmity between your seed and her seed. 
right? I love what she says here. We will either be at war with ourselves, with our own nature, or we'll be at war with the truth. Well, friends, given those two options, I want to be at war with myself. I want to be at war with myself. I want repentance, humility, understanding, insight, contrition. I don't want to be at war with the truth. Um, man, I can just go on and on here. Here's another one, page 350. The Jews thought to confine the benefits of salvation to their own nation, but Christ showed them, this is one of the great lines in the whole chapter, that salvation is like the sunshine. It belongs to the whole world. Salvation is like the sunshine. It belongs to the whole world. What's he doing there? Is, is Jesus doing something? Yes, but he's primarily undoing something. He's undoing parochial, insular, insubordinate nationalism. Yes, he's doing a thing, but what he's really primarily doing is undoing a thing. Oh man, so uh, just look at this. Yellow upon yellow upon yellow. Every place there that you see yellow is a place where she's expressly saying expressly communicating that Jesus is undoing something, right? Not just that he had something to say, he had something to unteach. They had to unlearn. Ellen White in another place, one of her great statements, she says, we have much to learn and we have much to unlearn. What Jesus was doing there on that mountainside was completely reconfiguring, recalibrating, reforming what Messiah is, what his kingdom is and how you get an entrance and access. And it's not through Abrahamic connection. It's not through genealogy. It's not through external religious forms. It's through orienting yourself to God as someone who has a great need. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. God opens up. She says, there's a great language there. She says, an abundant entrance, unconditional access to the storehouse of the wisdom of the knowledge and goodness and love of God when we orient our basic spiritual um, direction to God, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. God, I need help. God, I think I'm better than others, but I know I'm not. Fix me, save me. And Jesus is like, this is the kind of person I can work with. This is why he called the fishermen and the tax collectors. Remember what she said about Levi Matthew? The tax collectors were less bigoted than the religious leaders. Less bigoted. And so he could work with them. The clay was softer. And so what he's doing here with the multitude is he's helping them to see total reformation, total recalibration, total reconstitution of what the kingdom is and of the Messiah that will introduce that kingdom. And the people were just like, totally disoriented. So that's one of the other great hermeneutical keys there um, that Jesus is sweeping away. Okay, a four, I don't know if I'm on four or five here. I didn't number them. But I think this is the last thing I'm gonna say because I could go so long on this chapter and I'm literally skipping over, as you know, so much goodness here. But I do have to say this. Another really cool thing that emerges in this chapter is that, and I'll just read, read it to you exactly as I wrote it here. There is a strong emphasis on, ant, or let me say it this way. There is a strong anti-compartmentalization theme in this chapter. True faith is pervasive, organic, saturative, and unconcealable. Okay, now that's a great big long word. 
There is a strong anti-compartmentalization theme. Anti-compartmentalization. Nine syllables. That's a nine-syllable word. Anti-compartmentalization. How often does she say that religion is not to be confined to the external for show, um, something that you do when others are looking? What she says is again and again and again and again and again, true religion is, what are my words here? Pervasive throughout the life, organic, it grows from within, it's not external, saturative, it's, ev it's everything about you and unconcealable. True religion True conversion is not something that you can flip on and off. No, it's who you are. And he contrasts this again and again with this sort of showy compartmentalization of the religious leaders who would behave in certain ways. It's funny that I would say compartmentalization because one of the features of the religious leaders of the day and of Judaism of the day was to have these, these compartments, right, called phylacteries that you would put either on your forehead or on your wrist. It was literally like a compartment and this is why Jesus says you enlarge your phylacteries. You make these little boxes. There were boxes that you put like as a headband or on your wrist. To and they had, they had Torah in them to show. I'm very serious about Torah. So it's, it's kind of a funny little, it's punny that I would be saying anti-compartmentalization when basically what these phylacteries were, were compartments to show, look, look, look at, I have Torah. And Jesus is like, stop it with the showiness. Stop it with the loud prayers on the streets. Stop it with the charitable acts that you sound a trumpet before you so that everybody knows what you're doing. True religion is saturative. It's organic. It's, it's thoroughgoing through the whole person. It's, again, anti-compartmentalized. And there was a, just a couple passages here to this effect. I'll, I'll just see if I can find them. Um... There was two that I really want. I don't know why I didn't mark them. That was silly. If I can't find them, I'll read them to you tomorrow. But I should be able to find them. It's just such a big chapter. Let me see if I can locate it. Oh, here it is. Okay, here's one of them. <laughs> Page 353. This is like, underline every word. Underline everything in this paragraph. 309 of the original. Are you ready for this? Bombshell. Talk about a bombshell. The greatest deception of the human mind in Christ's day was that a mere assent to the truth constitutes righteousness. In all human experience, a theoretical knowledge of the truth has been proved to be insufficient for the saving of the soul. It does not bring forth the fruits of righteousness. A jealous, a jealous regard for what is termed theological truth often accompanies a hatred of genuine truth as made manifest in the life. There's that anti-compartmentalization. The darkest chapters of history, here's where she goes in and she goes in hard and deep. The darkest chapters of history are burdened with the record of crimes committed by bigoted religionists. Ouch! The Pharisees claimed to be the children of Abraham and boasted of their possession of the oracles of God. Hey, look what we have. Look, look what we have possession of, right? In their phylacteries, putting Torah on their heads and on their wrists. And she says it. The Pharisees claimed to be the children of Abraham and boasted of the possession of the oracles of God. Yet these advantages did not preserve them from selfishness, malignity, greed for gain, and the basest hypocrisy. 
They thought themselves the greatest religionists of the world, but are you ready for this? But their so-called orthodoxy led them to crucify the Lord of glory. What do you do with that sentence? Their so-called orthodoxy led them to crucify the Lord of glory. And then the next paragraph is all about anti-compartmentalization. The same danger exists today. For many take it for granted that they are Christians simply because they subscribe to certain theological tenets. But have they brought the truth into their practical life? This is what I mean by pervasive, organic, saturative, and unconcealable. They have not believed and loved it. Therefore, they have not received the power and grace that come through the sanctification of the truth. Men may profess faith in the truth, but if it does not make them sincere, kind, patient, forbearing, heavenly-minded, it is a curse, a curse to its possessors. And through their influence, it is a curse to the world. Okay, we could go on here. We could go on and on and on. But friends, clearly she's making the point. And go back and look for those hermeneutical keys. So number one, I think there's four or five of them. Let me see if I can remember them. Number one, remember, original audience, original context, Jesus is saying the things that he's saying in a certain historical, social, religious context, number one. Number two, um, Remember that the fountain out of which the whole Sermon on the Mount flows is the Beatitudes and especially the first Beatitude. Blessed are those that recognize their spiritual poverty for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Ellen White has those two paragraphs where she says that in the righteousness of Christ, we have both our title and our fitness. I think that's number two. Number three, holiness is an acquired taste for fallen human beings and we get access to that holiness, to that insight, to that wisdom by orienting ourselves spiritually to God with an attitude of obedience, humility, contrition, repentance, self-distrust, okay? Um, number four or five, that's this anti-compartmentalization theme. So, so when you go through and look for these things, yes, there are so many highlights in here. I think my favorite highlight was salvation is like the sunshine, it belongs to the world, I mean, yes, thank the Lord Jesus Christ for that line, right? And there's so much goodness in here. But what I wanted to do here, rather than going through every bit, and literally, I just, I, mean, I just glance down now and see a sentence that I loved. He sought to break through the wall of traditional requirements which hemmed in the Jews. Undoing, 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 undoing. Go back through looking for these hermeneutical indicators and you'll see he's undoing, he's recalibrating, reconstituting, reforming. This is why at the end, Matthew says, when everybody heard him, they were like, they didn't know what to do. He had completely undone, overturned, upended the expectation of what Messiah was, what he would do, and the kingdom that he was bringing about. Okay, now let's do our rubric. I hope you've enjoyed that. A little different today because the chapter was so long and I thought rather than just going through it, you know, page by page, I'll just give you some big ideas that you can go look for yourself. I hope you enjoyed it because we're already at an hour and a half and it would literally take me another hour to go through and point out all of the things that to me were highlights. Okay, quickly the rubric. The point, the person, the prayer, and the practice. Okay, what was the point of this chapter? Well, I put... This chapter is 
telling the story of the Sermon on the Mount, which was designed to undo the false teachings and poor example of the religious leaders of Jesus' day and to paint a true picture of the Messiah's work and of the kingdom that he came to proclaim. You can summarize all of that in one word, two syllables, undo. Undo. Number two, what do we learn about the person here? Well, I really like this. I'm going back to my reconstituting of Israel and of Sinai, and we learn about Jesus that he is the lawgiver. He's the same one that gave the law on Sinai. He is uniquely qualified to say, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say. He is the lawgiver proclaiming God's law and love from the New Testament Sinai. He is the lawgiver proclaiming God's law and love from the New Testament Sinai. By the way, that was another theme. I forgot to mention that. I went through with orange, orange, and marked how often she talks about the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. It's, a, it's also a significant theme in this chapter. And uh, I, I suppose it occurs at least 15 to 20 times. I mean, it's really great. So that's another one to look out for. Um, how about the prayer? How can we pray this chapter? Well, here's how I'm praying this chapter. God, make me a true follower of Jesus and a citizen of your upside-down kingdom. A citizen of your upside-down kingdom, right? Your first is last and last is first. That's the kingdom I want to be a member of, the true kingdom. I don't want to get caught up in all of the political jockeying that's taking place in this country, in this world. We're on another level. We're on another, we're doing another thing. We're, our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. And it doesn't mean that you can't have some modest political convictions, but I would strongly encourage you to just see that this world is fundamentally broken. The people on the left don't have the answers. The people on the right don't have the answers. Jesus has the answers. And I'm not saying that you cannot have some political orientation or persuasion. We all probably do. But whatever you do, don't make that an idol. Don't make that something that you actually think could bring about lasting change. It cannot, it will not, and it has not. Jesus is the answer. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And don't get caught up in too much political idolatry. That's what the enemy is trying to suck you into, trying to get you to look with suspicion at your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, away with all of that folly, away with that. We are citizens of another kingdom, different situation, different context, different culture, different way of doing reality. And so I wanna be a member. Yes, I'm an American and I'm happy to be an American. There's a lot of really great things about America. There's some downsides to America, but my primary citizenship is in the upside down kingdom that Jesus came to tell us about. The kingdom where when you recognize your spiritual poverty, you get entrance and access to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Come on now, preaching. And then finally, the practice. Um, Lord, teach me to prioritize truth and love over everything. Not to live a compartmentalized Christian life. And finally, Father, don't let me let anything crowd me away from Jesus' presence. Just like the disciples were not to be crowded away from Jesus' presence, I do not want to be crowded away from the presence of Jesus. And I think that's been one of the great upsides of the DA with DA challenge. Every day we have an appointment, don't we? Every day we have an appointment. Yes, an appointment with one another, but 
primarily our appointment is with God Most High. Our appointment is with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our appointment is with our Creator and Redeemer. And man, I've gotten so many testimonies. So many people have said to me, this has changed my life. This has changed my life. I'm seeing Jesus now in a way I had never before seen him. Friends, that's the appointment we wanna keep. And not just in the mornings and not just on Instagram or YouTube. We wanna keep that appointment every moment of every day, just mindful, letting Jesus saturatively influence our life in an organic, unconcealable, pervasive way. That's the Sermon on the Mount. It's true internal religion versus false external religiosity for show. It's an incredible chapter. It's an incredible sermon. You could dedicate your life to seeking to understand the things that are contained in these three chapters in Matthew, and you would never plumb the depths of what's going on here. All right, I hope you all enjoyed that. We're gonna close with prayer, and I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, Probably this same time. I haven't looked at my calendar for tomorrow yet. Maybe I should do that. Um, It'll be either eight or nine tomorrow. And um, the centurion, I'm gonna show you something so cool tomorrow. The way that Matthew eight flows out of Matthew seven is, okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Transform us, turn us into the people that are not content with an external showy religiosity, a compartmentalized religion. Father, may Jesus be saturative. May the infilling of the Spirit get to every nook and cranny and corner of our lives. And Father, where we're afraid, and some of us are afraid, some of us have some some closets, some corners, some compartments that we're a little nervous about letting you in. But Father, just help us to throw open the doors, to clear out the cobwebs and the dust, and just to let the light, the sunshine of salvation that's for the world, shine in our hearts. And Father, in doing that, we're gonna be not only holier, we're gonna be happier. We're gonna be better off than if we only had certain places that we let you in. Father, we don't want that. We wanna be thorough, true, real, authentic, sincere followers of you. And we wanna be citizens of this incredible upside down kingdom. Father, if there's anything in our lives that needs to be undone, not just done, but undone, unlearned, Father, do that, do that. Do that through this DA with DA challenge is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.